been an incredible time of, of corporate worship. Amen. I mean, this is just the ability to be able to worship God as we just sing those words. God, we want you to be lifted up, and we want the truth about who you are to be lifted up. We want people not really to see us. We just want to be able to see you. Even when we drop things, we want God to be glorified. Amen? And he is. We've been going through this, this series on, frankly, a, a huge part of what it means to lift God up, to lift the name of Jesus up, specifically with how we live our lives, specifically with how we steward privilege. We've seen throughout the scriptures, I think we've been able to see many places where the idea of privilege is not something that was just made up. If you read the Bible at all, a cursory reading of the scriptures shows that privilege has always been here since the beginning of uh, creation, and it's always been something that God has called his people to steward well. He's never really called us to apologize for it. He's never called us to deny it. There's no reason to be shamed for it. But what we are called to do is steward it for God's glory. And so we've been looking at several different aspects of privilege. We've looked at uh, different ways that God has called us to, to steward what it is that we have or who it is that we are, whether it's our, our experiences, whether it's uh, our worship. Last week, we talked about how do you steward worship for the, for, for the glory of God. And, and so we kind of walked through kind of the misnomer of what worship is, kind of the, 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 the kind of abrogated view of worship. And now we've kind of tried to have a more holistic view of what worship is and what it means to live a life of justice and mercy and compassion and, and grace. And so today I want to ask you about a huge area of privilege that everyone, I think, in this room has. So let me ask you this question. What does it mean to be a citizen for you? What does it mean to be an American citizen? Just think about that for a second. We'll, we'll look at the privilege it is to be an American citizen, but what, what pops in your head when you think about your citizenship? Now, I suppose that it depends on several things. I think knowing some of the people that we have and some of the folks that aren't here today, but several of the people that we have, there are various backgrounds that will help you answer this question, right? See, normally when we talk about citizenship, in, in a country, and you were to ask somebody, hey, what does it mean to be a citizen? Honestly, that question is often treated like a Rorschach test. You know what a Rorschach test, those ink blot tests? If you go to a psychologist or a therapist and they're like, hey, look at this ink blot and tell me what you see. And, and so basically, based on that, you can tell a lot of times you're reading yourself into the Rorschach test, and that's how you know what it is that you're thinking, thinking and how you're thinking. Most of the time, when we answer that question, we're reading ourselves into the question. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the reason why if you ask one person uh, how they feel about their own citizenship, it totally depends on what their background's been, right? We've got people in this church that come from a family of proud immigrants, right? We've got family people in this church whose uh, parents or grandparents came here, and they have incredible, harrowing stories about what it took to get here. They have incredible stories about the sacrifices that were made to, to get here, the, the things they had to leave behind. I, I grew up in an area that was predominantly uh, black and Iraqi in Detroit. It's the largest Middle Eastern community outside of the Middle East in the world. And so my school was primarily Iraqi and black. And it was interesting to hear a lot of the things that people had to do just to escape Iraq in the 70s and what it meant for them, for them to be a citizen. And so, so for them, citizenship meant something very specific. Right? It was the idea of, of, of coming to a new place and starting a new life. And some of these folks had to give up uh, uh, huge jobs. They had to give up all of the education that they had. There were people that were doctors that came here and became janitors. Right? There were people that were engineers that ended up having to, to, to do things that in, some people would think are menial and beneath them. And of course, for them, they were like, I'm a citizen, I don't care. So for them, citizenship would mean one thing. There are other folks in here who have uh, either, A, served in the military like myself, or, or they have family members that have been a part of the military and have been a part of, of wars. And, and so citizenship for them means something different as well. Right? They may not have uh, the incredible immigration story, but they do have uh, this story of what it means to, to put my life on the line for my country and to, to fight in a war. If I really believe that this is something that is right, then it's something that's near and dear to my heart. Right? So for them, citizenship might mean something else. 
You also have people who are a part of certain groups that feel like that being, while they are a citizen and they're thankful for the rights that they have, they also acknowledge that they are a part of groups that might have felt either manipulated or exploited within this country. And so citizenship to them means something different. Here's where the idolatry sets in. Your Rorschach test becomes gospel to you, so you hold other people accountable for your Rorschach test. You hold other people accountable for your view of citizenship. You're like, well, for me, citizenship is this. So if you were a citizen like I am, then you would feel this way. So it's really hard to answer that question with any real sense of cogency, right? It's really difficult to answer that question with like one uh, consistent answer of this is what it means. This is what it should mean emotionally. This is what it should mean uh, for me. So let me, let me word the question a little bit differently. Uh, because obviously that is one that's going to be really difficult to answer as a group. Here's, here's, a, here's a better question. As a Christian, what does being an American citizen mean to you? The reason why I ask that, and I'm asking you all to be thinking, because there's a lot. I know that we're, this service is always going to be a little long, but I, I need us to dig into this because, honestly, if your earthly citizenship is of greater importance than your heavenly citizenship, you may not understand Christianity. You may have, uh, you know, I remember watching, you guys remember the movie uh, The Matrix? Remember how in The Matrix, look, it's, that movie is super old, so this is going to be spoiler alert, and you've been under a rock for a long time if you've not seen that movie. So I'm not apologizing for telling you this. So, so in, in, in The Matrix, you know, uh, ultimately everyone's kind of plugged into this big kind of bio, this, this, this crazy network that's in place that connects everybody to this kind of internet, this network that's there. And there's one who gets unplugged. But one of the things that you find out is you can only be unplugged if you willingly choose to be unplugged. It's the only way that they can let someone out. You have to willingly choose to be unplugged from this matrix, right? These human beings are in these pods, and they're just kind of asleep forever, but their brains are being stimulated, and they're in this separate world. And so one of the things that, that Morpheus tells Neo, he says, uh, it's very difficult for people to be able to accept this. Ultimately, he's saying it's hard for people to accept it because ultimately, if they don't want to be freed from it, then they will fight with their, all of their might in order to protect it. In other words, if there is something that we have all been plugged into, and if it starts to offend some of my sensibilities, my first reaction is to fight against it and defend it, even if it's completely false. See, the matrix feels good, and it feels right, and it feels familiar. And the moment somebody begins to unplug, or the moment we realize, my goodness, the reality that I've kind of constructed or that's been constructed for me has holes in it, and it's not actually matching the reality that is, I'm going to fight to defend first. So I'm telling you now, there are going to be things here that might force you to have to go, am I a red pill or a blue pill kind of person? And hopefully, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll walk through and say, listen, at the end of the day, God makes it very clear how we should view our citizenship. So, so I'm at, put the Rorschach test to the side for a minute. Let, just let go of whatever it is. I don't care if it's because of our familial connections, our historic, you know, our story, if it has to do with just logic and the way we've always thought about a thing. Let God be the final word on this. So when we look at this, this passage, we're going to look, turn right now to Leviticus 19, as, as I'm telling you this, because this is an incredible, incredible place to go. God gives us the answer to how we should view our citizenship. Throughout the scriptures, but this is one really important one. Why? Because uh, ultimately, Leviticus is a part of the Old Testament law. It's a part of the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. And, and so here, you know, how, you know what's funny to me? Whenever we look at the law, whenever we look at the Old Testament, it's interesting. People have always said, you know, I'm about the gospel. I'm about God. I'm about loving Jesus. I'm about this and that. I really don't want to talk about policy and those kind of things because we leave that to the politicians. We over here are the church, and we focus on this. You do realize the policy began with God. If you read through the first five books of the Bible, all it is are policies, right, that are rooted not just in uh, 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 human logic but rooted in covenant relationship with God. Keep in mind, this is a nation that's a theocracy. It's not a democracy. What's the difference? Well, in a democracy, we elect people to make policy. In a theocracy, the policymaker just gives you the policy. The policymaker says, this is how things are to function in my kingdom. 
And so ultimately, when we, when we kind of shy away from, we're actually shirking our responsibility as Christians because to God, policies matter. See, every part of the Old Testament, when you read the laws that are in place, the commandments that are in place, ultimately these are, if you're going to be in community with me and in community with my people, this is how you are to live. This is how you are to treat each other. This is how you are to love each other. And this is what happens if you violate any of these. That's policy. And so when, when, when we ask this question, how do, we, how do we live out our citizenship? How do we steward our citizenship? It's our job to live out God's policies wherever we find ourselves. We're not in a theocracy any longer. So now here's the deal. We now are in a position where we have to say, okay, how do we live out God's heart in the midst of uh, us having the choice over what policies we want? How do we do that? Well, I think some, some of that is going to be answered in this passage. So as we look at Leviticus uh, 19, keep in mind that while this is a different time, the role of God's people is still the same, right? The responsibility of God's people is still the same. Ultimately, what are we doing? We're supposed to be able to bear the very heart and mind of God. We're supposed to be able to manifest the community of God for the people here. That's what Israel was supposed to do in the Old Testament. That's what the church is supposed to do in the New Testament. That's why we pray what during the, the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For so many of us, we've just focused on, we're not going to see much of that kingdom here. We're just going to wait for heaven. That's not gospel. Do you understand that? That's actually not gospel. The gospel says, not only am I so thrilled that I've been saved from sin, death, hell, and the grave, but I'm on mission with a God that's actually letting heaven encroach into earth. And so I'm supposed to be a part of a movement that is indeed giving a little foretaste of the kingdom that's coming. This is what it means to actually steward citizenship. So as we go through, I'm not, we're not going to read through all of 19. I'm just going to read maybe four verses in here, and we're going to dig into that. Uh, so I'm going to start with the first thing, because as you process this, I want you to connect your citizenship to your holiness, and I guarantee most of us, we've never really thought, I, this has been one of the most convicting passages to read for me when I consider citizenship and its connection to holiness. How do we know this? Chapter 19 is one of many chapters where God is just giving you a complete list of, or a, a, an exhaustive list of, here are all the aspects of your citizenship that matter to me. All of it. And so here's the first thing he says when he says verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying... Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord God, Lord, your God, am holy. Now, depending on what brand or what version of evangelicalism or other church tribes we've been in, holy is a very difficult word to define because either A, holy for some of us is, we've said this before, how my private, personal, religious life with God looks, Right? Important things that need to happen, right? My spiritual disciplines that are there. The time that I spent praying, the time that I spent in scripture, the time that I spend ensuring that, that my eyes and my hands and my feet don't go places where they shouldn't go, right? That's holiness. Awesome. Except very little of that is in this chapter. You see, holiness goes beyond that. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. And if we're not getting the more, then we're actually not actually showing the heart of God. There's a piece of it that we get, and we like it because that's the part that we like how we feel with that, but there's something more. So here's some of the things that he brings up, and, and the, the, what I'd love to highlight is this. Um, the first thing I want us to understand is the way you steward your citizenship is indicative of your holiness. The way you steward being a citizen, I don't care what country you're in, but here we are in America. So if you're an American citizen, the way you steward your citizenship is indicative of your holiness. Have you ever thought that way? I haven't. But it's so clear in this chapter, right? Because most people are going to say, well, you know, it really doesn't matter. I don't really care about any of those things. I just make sure that I've got my life together with Jesus. We're good. I give him my holy high five in the morning, give him my holy cup of joe. And then I go and I just serve him and I worship him and I come home and do it over again. And, and that's my life of holiness. And yet God is saying, hey, listen, you are a citizen of my kingdom. Here's how I expect you to steward your citizenship. And look at where he goes in verses 9 and 10. And this is, this is huge. He says, 
Now, keep, you know, when you get a chance, read it because he's going through tons of things. Here's what I expect from you. Here's what your Sabbath should look like. Here's what your worship should look like. Uh, and then he says in verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Have you ever connected that to holiness? Most of us really haven't really spent a lot of time in this because this is like Leviticus and there's a lot of crazy laws. And we're like, yeah, New Testament grace, yay. We kind of miss some key things about God's heart here, right? What does it actually mean when he says, okay, this is what it means to be holy. First he says, be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. So now let me tell you what it looks like to be holy. And then what he does is he kind of he really digs into a topic that we've been touching on a little bit. But here's ultimately what God is saying. Your holiness begins with your ability to steward your resources for the poor and for the sojourner or the immigrant. Whoa. God says that part of your holiness is actually the degree to which you steward your resources, not for yourself, but for the poor and for the immigrant. Now, what do the poor and the immigrant represent? Because there's several other people groups that we see too. The poor and the immigrant represent unprotected people groups. You see, during those times, you had tons of unprotected people groups. You had the poor. You had the immigrant. You had the widow. You had the fatherless, the orphan, right? You had several people groups that normally throughout the Near Eastern world, the ancient Near Eastern world and the Middle Eastern world, usually were unprotected. They were easily manipulated. They were easily exploited. And so God says, a function of your worship, right, a function of your holiness should be how ardently you advocate for those that can't protect themselves. So why is he bringing up this? Why is he talking about uh, the, 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 this law that they have here? This is the, the principle known as gleaning. Okay, if you've done any study throughout the Old Testament and, and specifically the Jewish law and what this, what this actually meant, here's, here's the best way to think about this. A, if you had uh, land, you were those that were privileged. There weren't many, right? Like in most uh, uh, countries, you don't have as many people. You have a smaller percentage of people that own land. But if you did have land, you were privileged and there were responsibilities that you had if you actually followed God. Part of the, so here's what normally would happen. If you have land, it's a lot of work. Those folks who have grown up in the country or grown up on a farm knows there's a lot of work that goes into harvesting, right? And so normally what you would do is you and a team of folks that you hired would go through when it's harvest season, you would go through and you would gather all of the things that you have in your field for harvest. For your family, you would sell it, you would make money off of it. This is how you would build wealth if you had enough of that, right? If you had enough helpers. So typically what would happen is it was your job just in general, it was your job and to get people out to gather, hey, what do we have in the harvest right now? But here's what the law was uh, according to God. You don't exploit all of your resources to maximize profit for yourself. You didn't do that. Keep in mind what he told him here. He said, first, leave the margins of your field unharvested. Why would he say that? You see, I, I, when I was in business school, one of the things that they would always debate about was, what is the number one priority? Is it maximizing profit or is it maximizing uh, shareholder profit, right? It's a big kind of big debate that goes on. But one of the most people would say, hey, if you're a business, if you're a firm, your number one priority is take whatever resources that you have, take whatever uh, privilege that you have, whatever things that you have, whether it's money, whether it's capital, whatever it is, people, use those things to build as much revenue as possible for the firm, right? That's just good free market capitalism. This is the way things work. You, you, you take what you have. You're not robbing anybody. You're not stealing anything. You're not doing anything, quote unquote, immoral. You're just taking these are my resources. I use them all for my own benefit, for my company's benefit. Right? That's kind of the normal way of thinking. That's how you build a great business. And yet here, God is actually telling them to do something very inefficient. You know, we don't like inefficiencies. If you have any kind of business background, anything that's inefficient, that's, you got to trim the fat, you got to cut that out. That actually isn't uh, right. I see fist pumps. We don't like inefficiencies, right? And yet God says, hey, don't maximize your field for as much as you can get for it. Instead, 
Leave the margins unharvested. It says, don't pick up the produce that falls on the ground after you harvest either. See, normally if you were harvesting, if you were picking up the harvest, you would go through the field. So if you had grapes, if you had a vineyard, you'd go through the field and you'd start picking off grapes, right? Picking off grapes. If any grapes fell on the ground, you, you, you were not to pick those up. If you left something on the vine, you, you didn't go back and get it again to be able to get every possible thing. Why? Because what was intended was for the poor and the immigrant to be able to come behind and glean what was left. You see, ultimately, God is saying, I want you to steward your resources in such a way where it actually will build and advocate for those that can't provide for themselves or for those that can't advocate for themselves. So use your resources. It's okay for you to go and to harvest these things the way you would, but don't maximize it to the fullest. You know what's beautiful about that? What's beautiful is it's not just take your resources and just determine, okay, you know what? Instead of letting them do it, I'm just going to give them what I think they need. That's not what it is. It's not like I'm going to go and I'm just going to give them what I think they need and that's going to be it. No, and and you know, many times when you do that, you mean well, but you end up up, uh, in your helping, you end up hurting. Because ultimately, when, when, when all you're doing is just giving uh, everything to the person and they don't actually get a chance to be able to work for themselves, when you hand them something, you're pulling away their dignity at the same time. See, there's a dignity in being able to give someone access to the means of production. There's a benefit in giving someone the, the ability to go and say, listen, you've got all the land, you've got all the ability to, 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 um, to, to produce You've got that on locks. I can't do anything. I don't have any access to that. So basically, if you were poor or an immigrant, you just had to make money based on labor. That was it. And that was up and down, and sometimes you had work, sometimes you didn't. But what God said was, the re- I actually want my people to be distinct from the people of the world. And, and see, in the, in the world, typically countries always had laws to try to help advocate for, uh, for the, the, the poor, but they never had laws to advocate for the immigrant. And so God says, I want to take what it is that the world does, which is fine, but I want to show a distinction and say, we actually care. God says, my heart is actually for all the folks that are unprotected, not just the groups that are citizens that are poor. So he says, leave these things. Uh, And so basically, you would have gleaners that would come along. If you guys ever read the book of Ruth, right? We love the romantic story of Ruth and Boaz and all that wonder. Well, if you remember, how did Ruth meet Boaz? She was gleaning. That's, Ruth, Ruth, Ruth was out doing. Why? Because she was a poor immigrant woman. She was, from Mo, she was from Moab. So how did she meet Boaz? She met him by following that same law that said, hey, the only way that she, her husband, she was a widow. She didn't have a husband. She didn't have a way to subsist. So she goes there and begins to the process of, of gleaning. So one of the things that God says is ensure that you leave some of your resources available to be exploited or to be used and to be harvested by those who can't actually get land themselves. That's, that's huge, right? Because he not only is saying, do this for the poor, he's saying do it for the wanderer, the foreigner, the person who you would say is not a part of your nation. He says, hey, it's your job. This isn't a, this isn't a, a recommendation, Right? This isn't uh, uh, him just saying, you know, if you get around to it, do it. It would be good to be an extra brownie points. He's saying, be holy because I'm holy. And you know what holy looks like? Caring for these kinds of people. You know what holy looks like? Not maximizing everything you can for what you can get, but actually leaving certain uh, amounts so that other people can actually find a way to, with dignity, be able to work and to be able to produce and to be able to subsist. Now, isn't this... Isn't this inefficient? <laughs> what a, you know, in, 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 within evangelical circles, oftentimes we stop doing things to care for people because we think, well, we got to be a good steward of money, and that doesn't seem efficient. Stewardship of money, that's, well, there's going to be some inefficiencies here. You know, some of that money is going to go to waste. Or, or what if we uh, free up some of those uh, margins on our field, and then they end up just uh, uh, being so irresponsible with the field we give them? What if some of these people come 
And we've left all that part of the field for them to glean, and they mess up because of all the horrible uh, personal decision-making. We need a new policy. And God says, no. Why? Because in doing it, regardless of the outcome, you glorify me in the actual journey. The destination is not more important than the journey here. You actually look like God in the way you're loving people. And if they waste it or if they are completely irresponsible, that's, that has nothing to do with you glorifying God with your resources and with your privilege. This is what God says. See, because there definitely were people that would have been uh, wasteful. There would have been people that would have been irresponsible. And yet, see how we create new definitions for good responsible stewardship? Responsible stewardship is how do I steward what I have for the least of these, period. Whatever they do, that's, up. that's definitely between them and God, and hopefully we're able to help disciple and lead and help people not to be wasteful in those ways. But that is not a call to inaction. Stewardship should never be a call to not caring for the least of these. In God's economy, maximizing profit in this way is unjust. In God's economy, maximizing profit in this way is actually unjust. You see, one of the things that you realize, if, you, if, these, if you're like these folks, if you were privileged, you had more access to resources than the groups that were unprotected. So if you maximize your profit, it actually meant restricting access to the means of, of, of production. You got a chance to be able to freeze out. You realize anything you cling to, you're clinging to so that other folks can't get it. I don't care what it is. Name anything. Anything you're holding to and you're clinging to, you cling because you know if you let it go, someone else will get it. The reason, and so when it becomes unhealthy, that's what happens. Sometimes people are un, in an unhealthy way, very possessive in relationships. Why are they clinging? Because they think, if I let you go, somebody else will get you. Why do I hold to things and I just white-knuckle it so hard because I'm so afraid to lose it? Because if I lose it, there's no way I'll have it again. This is not a just way of living. And we know this throughout the scriptures, right? Exodus 22, God says this, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 24, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may, be, may bless you in all the work of your hands. When, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Unprotected people groups are supposed to find safety among God's people. Yes. Period. Yes. I, this has nothing to do with where you are politically in the spectrum. And trust me, whether you're on the far left or you're far right, your politics are probably an idol for you. I'm just telling you now. Your politics are likely an idol for you if this truth doesn't burrow into your heart. Because ultimately what you're saying is, my, my political citizenship is far greater than my holy heavenly citizenship. Which ultimately is saying the kingdom of me is far greater than the kingdom of God. Unprotected people groups are to find justice among God's people. Now, we defined justice last week, right? Think about it like the three Ps, equal protection, equal provision, equal punishment. We said it before. If you've grown up in a certain type of Christianity, then justice typically just means the equal punishment piece, making sure that people are punished for wrongdoing equally, and that's it. But the, but, the, but the scripture, right, the, the Hebrew word for justice, right, this word mishpat and what it means to actually seek shalom is this piece of what actually does it mean for everyone to have equal provision, equal protection, and equal punishment. That's the job of God's people. And so, so ultimately when God says, hey, by the way, you know, if you're making olive oil, don't go back and get more olives so that you can make more olive oil. Leave that for folks so that they can make olive oil. Leave it so that they, if they want to be able to have a little bit of a business so that they can make money, allow that for them. And I think the biggest piece is like, leave it for them, even if you don't think they're worthy of it. You see, one of the things that's not there, there is no rubric by which we're supposed to determine who's worthy of this kind of justice. There really isn't a rubric there. We create it. Right? Because we're not in a theocracy, right? So we get to choose, well, only of this and only of that. That's actually not part of God's heart. 
He just says the folks who are in these unprotected groups make sure that these levels of access are available. Sadly, in our history, in the church and outside of the church, when it comes to the sojourner or the immigrant, whenever we feel threatened, we generally blame the immigrant. If you just look throughout the history of how we've treated, I can go back to 200 years, it, whenever, whenever there's something I feel threatened, if I feel like my job is threatened, if I feel like my security is threatened, if I feel like anything that I believe I'm entitled to is threatened, the first person, the first people that I blame are the unprotected groups. And so here, in this case, what happens? It's really easy to then uh, vilify certain people groups, right? If I know that there are three or four examples and I do the confirmation bias thing, I already think they're a problem, let me go and find two or three examples to prove my point already because I'm not really doing real statistical analysis now. I'm just biased. And so confirmation bias, boom, got it, told you, they're the problem. Those folks are the problem. I told you, we said this last week, the biggest problem we have in the church is the same problem that we have outside of the church. We constantly use phrases like them and there. We rarely look at them and say us. But that's actually the heart of God. We're going to see this because he's going to say this in, in a second. Look at verses 33 and 34. This, if, if you don't think that that's really how you should think, take a look at this. Verse 33 and 34, he says this, and this is, again, yet incredibly, incredibly convicting. It says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself. Why? Not because this is the good thing to do, be a good bleeding heart liberal and make yourself feel good and pat yourself on the back and say, look at how woke I am, have a woke biscuit. That's not actually what he's saying here. He says, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. He says, the reason why you're supposed to care about the stranger and the immigrant is because you're supposed to identify the ways that you were spiritually an immigrant before he found you. So if you can't find it in your heart to actually have compassion and care and figure out what does it mean to care for uh, any uh, unprotected group like this, I have to ask you, do you actually think that you were saved because you were worth it? Do you actually think that Jesus chose you because you were just that great to him? Because if you do, great. You, you believe in something that's called not Christianity, but cool. Enjoy that. I hope that works out for you. But that, that actually is a Christianity with no humility. You see, Christianity doesn't exist without humility. Humility says this, I realize that there is nothing that I brought to the table that made me worthy of this. There's nothing that I brought to the table that said, Jesus, you need to bring me through the spiritual Ellis Island and take me past death, take me past hell, take me past the grave, because I'm worth it. Look at my passport. If you believe that, you don't believe in Christianity. And so when, 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 you, when you look at this and you see this passage, I hope it does to you what it does to me. We tend to treat the immigrant as the other when God's people were expected to treat them as family. This is actually what we're called to do. We, we, we love them the way we love ourselves. Now, why were the Jews expected to do this? Because the Jews, not only could they identify with that spiritually, the Jews could identify with that very, in a very real sense, right? He appeals to what they went through in Egypt. He said, listen, it's, it's always incredible that for many of us, I think all of us in our heart, there is this prideful spirit in our heart that realizes that while we stand on third base, we act like we hit the triple. We're like, hey, look at what I found myself. I'm a great slugger. And yet what God is saying is, hey, by the way, I want you to remember the only reason why you're on third base is because I'm the one that made the hit. The only reason why you were brought home is because I'm the one that brought you home. You see, if you act like you're the one that did it, then of course, you see no need to show this kind of care for anyone else because you're forgetting very conveniently that you were rescued too. So again, today, we don't live in a theocracy, but our call is still the same. Anywhere God's people are, this call is still the same. The requirement is still to do the same. What's the great requirement, right? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, Micah 6.8. That's what God says, this is what I require of you. Again, not a, not a suggestion. He says, anywhere you are, if you're a citizen of my kingdom, 
then this is what I require of you. So what does it mean then to do justice? That's the big question. Because ultimately we hear these things, like, okay, that's great. What do I do? What, what, what do I say? What am I supposed to do to care for people? Like there's lots of issues out there. I don't know that I have the time to figure out all these. What, what do I do? How do I specifically, if we're going to talk specifically about this group, there's plenty of unprotected groups, and some of us are very familiar with those. For this specific group, when we talk about those that are the immigrant, documented or otherwise, when we talk about the immigrant, the sojourner, the wanderer, how do we specifically do justice? Well, I'm going to tell you this. There's a meaningless phrase that I'm going to suggest you never use, and that is the phrase, my thoughts and prayers are with them. Here's why I say that. We're not, this is not me assailing the idea that prayer itself is some, somehow impotent and weak and wrong. No, like we are supposed to always be, have a heart of prayer at all times, right? But that's prayer, a heart of prayer, hopefully, is you, you do realize that when you're praying, please know this, when you're praying, you're not praying to move God. You're praying that God moves you. Please know that. So when you're praying, you're not just praying to go, Lord, my prayers, they're, so, they're chock full of great theology. That should move you. Or my prayers are chock full of good emotional uh, uh, reaction, and so that should move you. I'm being real, and I'm being honest about who I am, and that should move you. God is saying, and you're communicating to me, I'm actually using your prayers to move you. First of all, our prayers don't, do any, don't really do that much, do they? The scriptures say we don't know how to pray as we ought to. That's why the Spirit prays for us with groanings that can't be uttered. So ultimately, prayer is not about moving God. It's about God moving you. And so when we say, well, my thoughts and prayers are with them, you realize this is just a convenient Christian PR approach to make myself look pious enough and say, hey, listen, um, uh, my, my thoughts and prayers are with them. Let me tell you this. Biblically, because we need to go back to Scripture here. There are 222 verses in the Bible that share actual specific prayers. I did the research. 222 prayers. Now, there are other places where they say, and they pray. We don't know what they pray specifically, but there are 222 places in the Bible, both old and new, where there are actual prayers put out there. And here's the kind of things that you see, because there's no question. Examples of prayer throughout the Bible, the Bible's replete with examples of prayer. But most of these examples of prayer involve this. They involve uh, asking for protection or deliverance. Very important. We pray for that, right? Uh, prayers for provision. Sometimes it's, Lord, we need food. Lord, I need an heir. Uh, prayers for direction and revelation. Lord, I need guidance. I need to know where to go. Sometimes there's prayer for forgiveness. Or, Lord, show mercy. Spare us your punishment. Sometimes there's prayers where they're just voicing complaints. Yes, God can handle your complaints. Those all are incredible prayers. Now, here's a question. In cases where there are injustices perpetrated upon other people, there is no example of prayer in the Bible. You know why? Not because we don't pray. Because ultimately, when there is injustice, God says, "Before your thoughts and prayers should move you to do justice. See, we're called, when it comes to injustice, we're called to move. We're called to act. See, oftentimes, thoughts and prayers are an excuse for inaction. Thoughts and prayers are a convenient way to say, I don't know that I have the time to really figure out what my role really should be, so I'm just going to passively say my thoughts and prayers are with them. And I think that it's, it's sad because it just becomes a convenient tool for justice prevention. And that's why we don't see examples of it. Matter of fact, the example that we see throughout the scriptures is the moment that there is injustice we're actually supposed to move first. How do we know this? Go to James 2. James 2, we know the scripture really easily, right? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So substitute faith for thoughts and prayers. Substitute faith for thoughts and prayers. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has thoughts and prayers but does not have works? Can that thought and prayer save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking the daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, thoughts and prayers by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It amazes me that as Christians in America, we are the slowest to act when it comes to these types of injustices. But don't, don't get me wrong. When there are issues that we really care about, then we're all about acting and making something happen, right? Whether policy or otherwise. But it's these kinds of issues that we're like, oh, I just, I don't know what to do. So my thoughts and prayers are just going to have to do this time. You see, the, the, we, we become so slow to act, and it's so frustrating, and I'm convicted because I'm so guilty of this. It's so easy to be able to just either passively just overlook it. If it doesn't, I'm privileged enough to not have to face certain things, and so it doesn't really touch me. It doesn't really affect me, so I don't have to think about it. If there are things that adversely affect other people, and I am not in those circles of influence, or I don't, I'm not in those concentric circles, it doesn't affect me, I don't even think about it. And if somebody brings it up, I can conveniently just kind of pivot off of it. I remember one of, the, one of the times that this, on a small level, something like this happened. I have a cousin who, uh, when she was born, she's an older cousin, a lot older than I am. So when, when I was born, I just knew her by her nickname. And her nickname, because of the shape of her eyes, her nickname was a pejorative for those in the Asian community. I had no idea it was even that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was even a word that was used to, to say anything untoward about a fellow image bearer. And yet, that was just the way it was, right? Grew up in this family, didn't have a whole lot of folks from that community around me, so it was really easy. Oh, yeah, I was talking to my cousin, blah, 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 blah. And people were like, whoa, what? How, why, why are you saying that word? I'm like, what are you talking about? That's her nickname. I didn't even know it was a word used that way. But see, the, 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 the ignorance of injustice is no excuse for it. It's not. The moment I knew that, man, God cares about image bearers and there's words and language that I'm using about image bearers that are not glorifying to God, that needs to change. And I'm telling you, it just stopped me in my tracks because I went, what other things, because of my own privilege, do I overlook? What other things do I, like we talked about last week, in my worship and i am and I'm got my hands up and I'm singing and I'm moving around and I'm stomping on other people next to me because I'm so into my own worship? What is that looking like for me? You see, if you know that I don't have a place to live and you have a home, I don't need your thoughts and prayers. I just need a room. If you know that I don't have food and you just got back from Costco, I don't need thoughts and prayers. I just need a sandwich. If you know I don't have shoes and you just got 10 pairs of Christian Louboutins, I don't need your thoughts and prayers. I just need some Stacey Adams. You see, see, ultimately, the goal here is how do I steward my privilege and even my citizenship for those who don't have it? That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to care when we care about uh, justice and provision and the, the, the greatest, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think about when I'm, when I'm always kind of processing this is the greatest privilege that we have as American citizens is actually the, the, the privilege of the vote. You see, when you're a non-citizen here, there are other things that may still protect you, but the one thing that you can't do, the one thing you have no uh, uh, power to do is to actually vote. Now, why is voting so important? Because you get the opportunity to now be at least a part of the process of how policy is shaped. So you're the governed, but you get to have a say in how you're governed. That's actually the most beautiful thing in theory about a democracy is you get the ability to have a say. Now, it doesn't mean that your say is always going to happen, but in theory, you have the ability, especially on the local level. We're not even talking about presidential politics. That's a quagmire in and of itself. But, but even on a very local level, one of the primary... Listen, the most responsible way to steward your citizenship is actually in the way that we vote. Why? Because ultimately, when policies are set... Policies are in place to be able to govern the folks that live in our communities. That means that in our communities, if we have unprotected people groups anywhere around, I should care about the policies that are there. 
I should actually care about, uh, forget about the pet issues that we always have, and that's why I vote because of this issue or that issue. Ultimately, your job, because you can't get it right, you can't get it perfect, there's issues on both sides, but ultimately you're like, how do I steward my citizenship? How do I steward my vote in such a way that will maximize flourishing for the greatest number of people? That's ultimately what we're called to do. So regardless of how we vote, if we can, with a clear conscience, go, I see this, I'm realizing, I'm doing the research, I see why things are the way that they are, and so I want to be able to steward my citizenship well for the sake of those that don't have access, then this is how I'm going to vote, this is how I'm going to comport myself, this is the ways that I'm going to bring awareness to certain things, this is what I'm called to do. So for those of you who are like, you know what, I don't even care about any of this stuff, that's why I don't vote, that's unacceptable. As a Christian, it's unacceptable because we're actually called to care for the least of these and not just beyond, beyond just the individual. I, oftentimes for us, the way that we typically like to do it, we say, hey, there's, there's injustice somewhere. Let me go find one person that's in this group and let me do something with them, right? We use phrases that mean well. It's all about relationships. So we I find somebody that I can have a relationship with. All right, I found one. What am I doing? I'm going to make sure that maybe I'll teach their kids English, which is important and vitally important. Or I'll make sure that I fill a backpack for school. Or, uh, you know, I make sure that I throw a turkey over the wall for Thanksgiving. And, and, and I do these wonderful things because I want a moment. What I want is I want moments to scratch the justice itch. So I need a moment. So let me create moments. So what ends up happening is I end up using people and collecting people to create moments for myself. But Jesus didn't call you to a moment. He called you to a movement. And the difference between a moment and a movement is sacrifice. So what do you do? I don't have time to study all these issues. I don't, I don't know everything that's going on. The least you can do is sacrifice time to learn the issues. You will definitely make time to binge watch a show. We'll definitely make time to watch and listen to our favorite talking heads. We'll make time to do any number of things. That's why it always cracks me up when people are like, I'm a, I'm a, big, I'm a big politics junkie. Most people I know, they're not politics junkies. They're talk radio junkies. It's a big difference. If you're a politics junkie, then you're watching C-SPAN and you're learning HB3574 does this. And, but you're not. You're a, you're a talk radio junkie. I've been that, so I know. And so what ends up happening is now I filled my head with what this talking head says over here. Now I call myself politically astute, but I'm not because I couldn't spell the name of the bill that, that we're talking about right now. And I don't even know how it's adversely affecting other people. I don't know how to steward my citizenship, but I feel good. Wow. This is not what we're called to. People say, I don't know the issues. I don't know the issues. You know, if there's a local uh, uh, candidate around, I don't know their issues. I don't know where they stand on this. I just know their character. That sounds like a good Christian thing to say. I just know their character. That's unacceptable too. I'm sorry, but it is. You want to know why? Number one, when you're electing somebody, you're not electing a pastor. So pause. You're not. You're not electing a pastor. Now, the other thing is this. People of fine character have been elected and passed some heinous and shameful policy for unprotected people groups with the church's backing. And so before you start, well, I just know their character and that's going to be the thing. No, stop being intellectually lazy. Learn the policies. Learn the issues. Learn enough about the people around you to be able to say, my word, even though I love this person a lot, if this policy goes forward, this is how this will affect my neighbor. And God calls me to love them like I love myself. So if I were in their shoes, how would I feel about a policy like that? That's actually what we're called to do. This is how you steward your citizenship. So when we say, well, I don't know the issues, you realize that a lot of these folks, there are people who have passed horrendous uh, policy, and at the same time, they were incredible husbands. They were incredible fathers. That's a real convenient pivot, too. Well, how, what kind of family do they have? I just want to be able to know that. If they're a family person, then they're somebody I can get behind. Laziness, laziness, laziness. Cerebral slothfulness. This isn't how we steward our citizenship. Let me give you a quick history of, of uh, as we get almost close here. The, the, the issue of voting, this is the most incredible privilege that we have. And there are people, ask Puerto Rico how much they would love to have the right to vote. Puerto Rico is a, is, a, is a commonwealth of the United States. They are citizens of the United States. They have no say in how they're governed. So when horrible things occur, they have no say in what to do. 
right? The vote is incredibly important. So again, for those that do have the vote, for those of us that do have a privilege to be stewarded, what does it look like for me to steward for those who don't have it? Our ability to vote first came 1776, right? Who were, who were the people that were able to vote in 1776? Men. What kind of men? White men. What did the white men have to have? Land. This is a good class. So if you were a person that didn't have land and you weren't white and you weren't over 21, that was another thing, and you had to be a Protestant, if you weren't those things, then how you were governed was not up to you. And if we understand sin the way we claim to understand sin, what is sin? Sin is ultimately a power struggle. The power struggle is God is on the throne. He's shown me that he's on the throne, but I want to be on the throne. So there are things that I will do to be able to show him, no, I do this better. If you've got a power struggle with God, which everyone in this room does, then you best believe you're going to have a power struggle with me. And if you think that there's some threat to your power, your influence, your ability to do anything, then you will vote in your best interest, not mine. That's sin. This isn't political. This is just spiritual. This is the nature of humans. So if you read all of your Bible, and not just three-fourths of it, if you read all of your Bible and you understand the nature of sin, this should not be foreign to you. 1789, Washington's elected president. You know what, what percentage of the population could vote at that time? Six. 1790, the naturalization law was passed. Only white free immigrants could be citizens. Okay, so again, now it's expanding a little bit. If you're an immigrant to this country, but you are in this particular, particular category, you can now vote. So now you get the ability to now vote for your best interests. Fast forward uh, about 50 or 60 years, citizenship granted to all of the Mexicans that were living in those territories that were conquered by the United States, but they were not allowed the power of the vote. You were just citizens now. And so they had no say in how they were governed. 1856, finally, enough people were clamoring and protesting and said, hey, even us poor white people deserve to vote. So white men, finally, in 1856, all got to vote. So congratulations. 1868, 14th Amendment passes. Now, former slaves are now considered citizens, but only the males can vote. So yay, guys, we all got it. Except women clearly have no say in how they're governed. 1870, now, because you didn't, now you had, think about it, you've got all these folks who, are, uh, who now have the ability to vote. You get a place like Georgia. In 1860, Georgia was over 50% African-American because of slavery. So now, when the war is over, 50% of these folks can now vote. How do you think they're going to vote? Oh, we got to do something about this. So in 1870, what happens? They pass laws that say, hey, in order for you to vote, you got to pass this reading test, and you got to pay this tax. And if you're not able to pay the tax or pass the test, you're not able to vote. Again, the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. That's just how it goes. So after 1870, 1872, women go and try to vote. They're turned away. Susan B. Anthony was arrested for trying to vote. Sojourner Truth was turned away. 1876, uh, the indigenous Native Americans are not considered citizens, so they're not able to vote. How crazy is that? The folks who were there, when folks got there and they're like, we have now determined because we have the gold now, the rule is you can't vote. 1887, the Dawes Act passes. Native Americans who give up their tribal affiliations can become citizens. So if you assimilate enough, you can now vote. 1920, women finally get the right to vote. Congratulations. You got it. Except the same type of uh, strong arming, the same type of intimidation tactics were used for women as well when they would go vote without any protection. 1922, Supreme Court says that if you have Japanese heritage, you are ineligible to become citizens. The year after that, if you have Asian Indian heritage, you're not allowed to be a citizen. Forty-five years later, the Voting Rights Act hits in 1965 and says there will be no more taxes, there will be no more tests. And so what happened after that? Well, folks began to uh, start being violent showing up and intimidating people, especially in the South, from ever voting. And finally, in 2000, the Supreme Court ruled that U.S. colonies are citizens, but they can't vote, no representation. Why are we digging into this? You might think that these things are supposed to be separate, but here's the question. If we're called to support and advocate the least of these, and they cannot vote on how they are represented or taken care of, is it not our job 
can you, in your understanding of Christianity, see how this is not just your option, but this is your job? This is our job. This is what we do. This is how we show who, what God's heart is like. You realize that we're giving people this foretaste of the kingdom that's coming. So for some of us, we're telling people the kingdom that's coming is probably still going to stifle you, but I'm going to be good over here. Bottom line is stewarding privilege means stewarding your vote, and our vote should go beyond our pocketbook. It needs to go toward those who demonstrate a concern for those that are unprotected. We, God's people, should be known by the people they protect, not the people they shun. We are to be known by the people we protect, not by the people that we shun. So who has the time for this? I, I can't know all the issues, but this is the question. Sacrifice is necessary. You have to sacrifice the time to be deprogrammed. I need it. We, we need to sacrifice the time to move past thoughts and prayers and move toward awareness, mourning, and action. We actually need to be willing to be wrong. Yes. One of the best definitions we ever arrived at for humility is, I would not put it past me. I could easily be overlooking something and be guilty of horrible injustice, and I wouldn't put it past me. But if I have a high view of myself, I won't even entertain the thought. If I think that I'm just beyond that, I won't even entertain the thought that in my own understanding of sin that I could be affected in the same way. Be willing to be wrong. Before asking myself, what should I do? Because we're always solutionists. All right, all right, all right, I hear this. But what do I do? What do I do? Part of that is the reason. Part of the reason for why we do that is because as Americans, as Western Christians, we have no, no, no theology of lament. We, we don't really know how to just stop and mourn the things that are wrong. We just want to hurry up and fix it. <clears throat> but actually, there's a blessing in actually mourning the ways in which we miss the mark. Because ultimately, the pressure isn't on us to fix everything, realize, God, reorient me back to the one who fixed me so now I can be empowered to go do the fixing. So when we get to this point, we're like, well, what do, I, what do I do? Ultimately, my prayer is what I've been doing ever since I've been just bum-rushed with this, with this truth is before I say, what do I do? I need to say to myself in a very repentant manner, what have I done? How have I uh, engaged these issues? How have I ignorantly engaged these issues? How have I not advocated for certain people, people groups that just don't directly affect me? How have I voted in some ways where I did not advocate for, for certain people in certain ways? Those are things that I should actually be asking myself, Lord, how have I done? What have I done? Ultimately, at the end of the day, aren't you glad Jesus didn't just send you his thoughts and prayers? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't just go, you know what, they do need help. They, they were born spiritually uh, an immigrant from God. They were born estranged from God. The scriptures say that we were enemies of God before we were reconciled. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't just say, I'm going to pray for him, God the Father. I'm going to pray for him. I hope they work things out. You know, everything happens for a reason, so I'm sure that you'll, you'll, you have a plan. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't do that? Aren't you glad that ultimately thoughts and prayers, nothing wrong with thoughts and prayers if the thought and the prayer moves us to action and the thought and the prayer of Jesus moved him to action. He said, listen, these folks are so far from you that I'm going to now sacrifice. Remember, moment to a movement. I'm not just going to take a moment and give thoughts and prayers. I'm going to initiate this movement. I'm going to go. I'm going to live life for their sake. I'm going to give my life for their sake. I'm going to die for their sake. I'm going to rise from the dead for their sake so that I can bring them into this kingdom, so that I can bring them into this family. Y'all, if you are not overwhelmed with this truth, you can't possibly know the gospel. You can't possibly love people the way God loves you. So then my heart breaks for you because do you know this love? Do you really know this? Or have you just been a cultural Christian all of your life? I've been that. If, if all you know is cultural Christianity and talking points, but you don't really know the heart of God, my prayer, my thoughts is that you would be moved to action, be moved to repentance. God came to save you from yourself. He didn't just send thoughts and prayers. And he reminds us the same way that the, that the Jews were reminded, you were an immigrant before 
you were reborn. You were spiritually estranged. You were an alien in God's kingdom. You were born estranged from God. You were born spiritually undocumented. And yet Jesus wrote the document in the Lamb's book of life and said, innocent, my child, my son, my daughter, my family. This is what God's holiness looks like. See, this is holiness, y'all. This is the way we're talking right now. This is holiness. The way that we steward our citizenship in order to care and advocate for the immigrant is the fruit of our holiness. So let's pray for fruit today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we are moved, uh, hopefully even to a place of repentance God, it's so easy to just, I just know for me, it's so easy to just get caught up in my bubble. And God, it's so easy to be caught up in wanting things to be easy. I just want things to be easily on the left or easily on the right so that I can just easily cast my lot. But God, at the end of the day, my lot has to be with you and you alone. God, we we realize that it's so easy to exchange true discipleship and true holiness for uh, forms of idolatry that are just sinful, that break your heart. And Lord, at the end of the day, we, are, we can see areas where we just don't image you well. We don't image you well even privately. We don't image you well publicly. God, you've said that even with each other we struggle with this. Father, there are people in these groups that are believers in you, that love you, that follow you, that on this side of heaven, we might even be ostracizing. And on the other side of heaven, we will be sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb together. God, I pray that you will move us to actually see these folks as us. Any group, any group that you call us to care for, any group that is unprotected, Lord, let we be known, may we be known, for the people that we care for. May we be known for the people who need shelter and protection. May we be known by those that we advocate for and not those that shun, that we shun. Because God, you never shunned us. You've accepted us. You've made us acceptable. So Lord, will you tie our citizenry to our holiness for your glory? It's in Jesus' name we pray. When we, when we come to this table, I don't know if you realize this, but there are some things that we proclaim when we come here to this table, and it's not just the individual stuff. I, I think that it's important when we get ready to partake of communion that we spend time examining ourselves and make sure there's not a place of individual sin struggles that are there that we need to repent of. That's important. It's vitally important that we come not harboring unrepentant sin before we come. It's vitally important that we examine ourselves there. But you do realize that in 1 Corinthians 11, there's uh, yet another aspect there of unity that's called before we ever come and take communion. One of the things that we're to do is to ensure that we are actually right with each other, which means if there's any area where I may have just stepped on my brother or my sister or overlooked or not cared for or not advocated for, I need to repent before I come to this table. The word of communion is what? Common. This isn't just individual stuff. This isn't just my relationship with God. This is also about my relationship to others. And so before we come, this is why Paul says, before you come, examine yourself to ensure that you're not taking this unworthily. Unworthily is not just about what you've done individually. It's definitely that. But for many of us, we we take it unworthily because we don't even consider, how am I caring for the least of these? Or maybe I just identify one group of the least of these and ignore the rest. But we're called to care about all of this. And it's no easy answer, and it's very hard, and we're going to be wrestling with this until we die. But ultimately, what communion says is not only are we mourning these areas, not only are we longing to have a deeper, to have God's heart for this, but we also are saying we will never get this right on our own. That's the reason why the resurrection What this actually pictures, what this actually shows and manifests for us is that when Jesus comes back, he's going to make all of this perfectly right again. There will never have to be whether I'm on the left or on the right. There will never have to be uh, what type of theology that you have. It will never have to be uh, how to care for these people versus these people. Jesus is coming to bridge that gap. Jesus is coming. What did he say he's going to do? I'm coming to make all things new. 
everything new. See, all we can do is wrestle with the old right now. But we wrestle with it while looking ahead to the new that's coming. That's our hope. You see, this is the reason why we can mourn and have hope at the same time. I mourn the ways that I don't look like him. I mourn the ways that I don't love like him. And, and I'm praying that he moves me to love and look like him. But I'm so thankful that eventually I'll never have to pray that prayer again. Because he's coming to remake me and make me new, make you new, make us new, make this world new. If this is where your hope is, if this is where your trust is, if this is what holiness looks like for you, then this table is for you. If this is not where you are, please hear me. This is not about, well, am I, am I in or am I out or what are people going to think? That's not what this is about at all. This is about genuine, Lord, I want to know what it is to really be holy, not just privately, but communally. And so let this be a time. If you're not there, let this time pass and you just start to go, Lord, maybe I just need time just in a time of repentance or I need you to really show me yourself. Maybe I don't really know you. Maybe I know things about you, but I'm not sure that I really know you because what I'm hearing here doesn't seem to match with what I think I know about you. Let this time just pass. Let this time be a, a time of prayer and reflection. And my prayer is that God would meet you there, whether you know him. If you don't know him, I pray this would be a time where he would reveal himself to you here and now. And this would be the first time in your spiritual life where you can say, I am truly in communion with God and his people. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that we do communion here by the process of intention. And so what that means is, you're going to come down the center aisle. You'll take a piece of, of gluten-free bread that Brother Dave, birthday boy, made. And you'll, you'll dip that in uh, wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal, this meal that they had had so many times in their lives. Every year they would celebrate this meal. They would celebrate what this entailed. They would celebrate the idea that their God rescued them from death. What was that picturing? It was always picturing the rescue that our Savior is bringing. And so he got up and he said, um, this bread, this is my body that was given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took the cup, another practice that they would have done for years and years and years. And he said, this, this is more than just religion, y'all. This is more than just ritual. This is actually my blood poured out for the remission of sins, the blood of a new covenant. This is the all things new. This begins, this inaugurates the kingdom, the all things new kingdom. He says, take and drink of this. What Paul tells us is that every single time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why are we proclaiming this? Because we're saying, ultimately, all of these issues are hard. All of these issues, are, they're not easy. There's no easy bucket to just jump in for every single issue. It's difficult, and we're going to be wrestling with this until Jesus comes. Well, what this is saying is that this, what this pictures, Jesus' death, his resurrection, the fact that he's coming to make it all right again, this is our only hope. If this isn't true, we have no hope. If this is true, we have all the hope we ever need. So if this is true for you, if this is your greatest hope, not just one hope, not a hope, but your greatest hope, then come and be reminded and taste and see that God is indeed good. We'll start in the back and we'll move to the front.